welcome to Directly Correct, a P-Funks podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Andrew Pitts, founder and CEO of Polynode. Thanks to our sponsors, Polynode. Harness the full power of organizational network analysis with Polynode. With one-click data integrations and built-in relationship-based surveys, Polynode enables people analytics practitioners to move from data to insights faster. To learn more and see why Polynode is trusted by some of the most innovative companies in the world today, book a demo at polynode.com slash directionally correct. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. So do you remember my story about the guy that like I held the door for him and like he like slid in like a fucking James Bond villain yeah. like, around the edge? Okay. Slip and slide. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh this is a longer story. Hopefully we can get through it, but <laughs> there's, there's something called, I'll be obtuse and call it um, scavengers here. It's a, it's a Slack thread. So there's a million teams having uh, offsites and they all, they're all catered. Mm-hmm. Right. So they always have food left over. Not always, but. Oh, you're speaking my language now. But uh, when they do have food left over, they put it on this, what I call it scavengers, a Slack thread. Yeah. So I, I was, I was at this building and like it it uh it, it hit it was like a minute previous so it was like you know it just fresh and it's just the building across the street so i was like you know i'll get my shit and i'll walk over there so i'm walking over there and kind of the same thing happened this this guy like i'm holding the door for him no thank you no nothing and he like he doesn't return the favor on the other double there and i'm like yeah. hey, what a fucking dick right mm-hmm. so we we go through security and we're both walking and uh oh boy we, we both hit the fourth floor Oh, that's that's weird. It's not like a common floor you uh-huh. know, that people would go to. And sure enough, we're both going to the Vultures thing. So this guy's already kind of ticked me off, right? Because he's <laughs> like, didn't return the door favor thing. And now he's in front of me in line, like directly in front of me. Yeah. And it, it's a fajita bar, right? So they got little like uh, uh, fajita chicken. And yeah. it's, it's, it's all picked over. I mean, it, it's, you, you yeah. know, whatever. But you could say it, they scavenged over it, you know. Exactly. And it's like maybe it's like one of those big like metal trays, uh, like catering trays. And it's got maybe an eighth of it left. So, I mean, a good amount. More more mm-hmm. than one person should eat, especially when there's a line of like 10 people behind you. This dude put took out his own like to-go container and filled. He took all the meat. <sighs> all the meat. And, the, and like there's a line of people like what the hell and then like he took there's like this massive bowl of parmesan cheese and he must have taken like half of that too i mean more than you would see at olive garden i mean this thing was massive and like on one hand you're like hey it's free it's up for grabs uh on the other hand it's like hey (laughs) we we got a bunch of people here there is social decorum man yeah and these are the people that make me lose faith in humanity (laughs) <laughs> right because just look around your social awareness like i don't know like oh. you just have to be like a, a person of like 99th percentile take advantage of other people type of individual to do that it's this is maybe it's big city living like where everyone's on top of each other i kind of liken it to uh when you used to go to like the pet store and see like the mice in a the cage they just kind of like step on each other's heads and don't really care <laughs> And uh, I, I think the same thing happens in big cities where people are like, well, I'm just going to get mine. No, I, I don't care about what you need or what you want. Well, can I tell you kind of like a, a similar story? Please. Um, please that's do. not as like survival of the fittest. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> when I was at a, it was very early in my career. I worked at a, let's call it a CPG company, right? They make, they make stuff that you would find in the grocery store. And okay. so they used to have these big displays that they were testing out um, in the lobby that they would be putting in grocery stores that would have tons and tons of their product. And you're talking about like buy buy our thing, like a big display. Yeah. Buy our thing. It's like cool. Like you might have like a Super Bowl one. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, it would be like that. And when they took those big displays down, they just gave away all the product internally. Oh, okay. And so every once in a while you would literally see adults sprinting down the hallway to, and you'd be like, why is that person sprinting down the hallway? It's because they found out <laughs> that they were taking down the big display and you could literally get tens, if not hundreds of pieces of this product, right? To take home with you. 
And so what I did is that the, the lobby used to be across from the company store. And I literally paid the person who worked the desk <laughs> at the company store and gave him my phone number to tell me when they were taking them down. And yes. I'm, I'm telling you, I would bring home so much of this. It would last me like six months. Like what, so, what are we talking about? Like anything good or is it like sponges? Oh yeah. It's really good. Like I probably brought home, if I had to estimate $300 worth of this product, you know, and if you, <laughs> if you knew what the product was, like it, it was, that's a substantial number of the product. <laughs> like I remember I had this, this, this box, this is like cardboard box, you know, like they ship boxes with like couches in them sometimes yeah yeah massive. like a box that size completely filled to the top with this product and it was like oh it was the best moment of my life <laughs> I, I love watching people freak out over free ostensibly trash stuff yeah. you know like there's a lot of swag out there and like thank thank the lord for swag don't get me wrong but some of it's like destined for the landfill like I'll, I'll walk through like an aisle in Target and be like, "This is all just straight to trash, right?" Like no one's. <laughs> it it yeah. isn't durable. It isn't has no valuable value on the shelf. I think about that all the time with like, you know, they 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 ship stuff to your house and it has like stuffing in it, to like packing like the things that like like peanuts? stuff and I was like, well, like peanuts, but also like it's like plastic bags now and oh, like yeah, they have yeah. a bunch of different variants of it and like wow, they made this just to just like use for 10 minutes and then sit in a landfill for a hundred thousand years. Like, you know, I don't know. That's the kind of stuff I think about. Uh, I saw someone freaking out about uh, throwing away like the grocery sacks you get at the grocery store. Like apparently we, you're, you're not supposed to do that. We reuse those. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's what they're saying. Like putting other groceries or pardon me, putting other trash yeah. in those things is apparently a no, no. It's like, why not? Yeah, why? You're going to have to, you're going to, you're have a steep argument against me to try to convince me that you shouldn't <laughs> reuse those. You'll see some like wild behavior here in Seattle. Like, uh, you and I know somebody, I haven't told you this story, but they're moving out and their neighbor was going through the recycling bin, pulling mm -hmm. out trash and taking it to the residents that they could identify whose trash it was. I mean, like this isn't recyclable, like quite literally insane behavior. That is insane. Wow. That's, that's insane level. I've never experienced before. Like this Who is banana peels, clearly not recyclable. Like, oh my you you God, don't God. have enough to do. Yeah. I, I, that's what it comes down to. Like you don't have enough to do. Well, like what do you have like a favorite Australian animal? Or thing or thing that you'd want to see. Uh, yeah, I, I do have something that I want to see. I'd love to get Andrew's perspective on it, but uh, yeah, I, I want to see a road train. What the heck is a road train? A road train. Look this thing up. It is a. Oh, there he is. There he is. Hey guys. Well, maybe Andrew can explain it to us. What is a road train? A road train is an epically long truck. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, they're mainly used in like the outback, and they just like keep going on and on for. This is the one thing that not not the one thing, but one of the things that I want to see in Australia. And last year I was in Prague and had the opportunity to sit next to a very lovely Australian couple. And I mentioned that the one thing I want to see is a road train, and they were endlessly tickled by this. <laughs> <laughs> like, why? Why would you want to yeah. see that? It's typically not on the list of highlights. Maybe like the Opera House or the Harbour Bridge. Or no, 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 no. We, we don't need that. We don't need that. <laughs> this is possibly because my youth was influenced by Steve Irwin, but uh, I want to see a, a a saltwater crocodile so bad. Now, I thought they only existed in Australia, but my understanding is they actually exist all around, like the you know indo-pacific area but i think the biggest ones are in australia so i would really love to come to australia and see a saltwater crocodile yeah i mean i hope you don't see it live i hope you go to a crocodile farm or something like that yeah that's what i mean i don't want to like be <laughs> swimming and be like hey buddy how Happen you doing on one yeah you need to yeah. go has needs to have a sign or a pin or at least right crossing the road in your road train <laughs>
So, so these ro- road trains, by the way, they're, they're like, what, 30 semi-trucks long? I mean, they're, they're forever long. Yeah. How did they not block the traffic? Like, logistically, how does this work? Well, they're, they're mainly used in the outback, so there's not that much traffic. <laughs> okay. Middle wow. of nowhere, and it's like a massive snake going down the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Imagine trying to pass on the left. Or I guess, is it on the right in Australia? It's Whatever. On Passing <laughs> on a two-lane road. <laughs> Passing like a half-mile long one. You have to go like 150 miles an hour for like 30 minutes to pass it. I don't know. But it, well, have you ever seen like a saltwater crocodile, Andrew, while you were like ocean swimming? Sorry, I want to come back to this because I know you ocean swim. Wait, wait. So you, like you go on the ocean, like deep water swimming? Is this is what I'm hearing? Yeah, you just like swim out in the ocean. And uh, yeah, it's uh, for a couple of kilometers and it's the most relaxing thing in the world um not uh not crocodiles uh sometimes sharks but uh yeah well so, i mean just sharks i think crocodiles are actually more dangerous than sharks i i believe that yeah mm. they see us as food sharks don't see us as food generally speaking mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> well what got you into uh, ocean swimming just out of curiosity uh oh I don't know. I just, I think it was probably about 10 years ago and um, I just decided it was something I wanted to do. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a big ocean swim every year in Australia. And so I just decided to do that. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, then you yeah, obviously have to practice for it and it's, yeah, I just started to enjoy it. Fascinating. You got you know, rip, rip tides to look out for and I'm sure they have all this sort of mark to really understand where this sort of stuff is, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's... It's generally pretty safe. Uh, Do you swim uh, with the current or against the current? Are there like any kind of like tips and tricks for doing this effectively? <laughs> Don't swim out where the water looks calm because that's generally where there's a riptide. <laughs> really? You see a crocodile, yeah. you, you move away. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm, I'm just me. I don't know anything about this. I thought I would ask good faith questions about ocean swimming. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we. I'm glad that we have someone here to really talk about networks, though. A- Andrew loves networks. Uh, I, I last year I, I made a network of these citations at Psyop and posted it online, and he grabbed it and made it way cooler through the Polynode system. And I was like wildly impressed by this. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Scotty. I, I, I don't know that I've actually mentioned this to you, but I, this year we're actually going to be at Psyop. I know it's going to be. Oh, easy. fantastic. What? Yeah. So, Are you presenting? You have a booth? No, what, just what, a, a, a deal. So it'll be the, the first year. So uh, for quite a few years, people have been, you know, encouraging um, you know, me and saying, you know, you know Psyop is a conference that you really have to go to. Uh, and so, yeah, we literally had the conversation with the, uh, Psyop folks uh, a week ago, and so we're gonna have a boot. And so uh, we haven't yet decided, but we'd love to create another interesting network for Psyop. So maybe what we're thinking is something like a citations network for the people that are presenting at Psyop. Well, that's fascinating. Absolutely, this is breaking news. You're gonna be at Psyop. This is fantastic. We're gonna get together. Yeah, we better get together. Yeah. (laughs) Because I don't think, I mean, we've spoken a few times, but I don't think we've ever met in yeah, person. I'm not sure that I'm personally going to be able to go to Psyop. Oh. Polynode will be there. <laughs> Polynode will be there. Okay. He, he slips it in at the last second. Well, I did uh, I did three trips to the U.S. last year. So I'm, I'm trying to keep the number of trips that I go to the U.S. and somewhat more manageable this year. Yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, you had done some fascinating work in the past, like, specific to people analytics too, of creating these networks. Um, I don't know. I can pull it up on the screen. You had this network of you mapped out all the people analytics influencers using LinkedIn data. What was, what was kind of the story behind that? Yeah. So that was actually, we were at another conference um, and I started to think to myself, I wonder how all the different people at this conference and the exhibitors at this conference um, are connected together because there are obviously all kinds of different strategic relationships and partnerships, um, competitors. Uh, and so the idea was to, to map like the, the ecosystem um, around this, this HR tech conference. Uh, and so I thought, well, 
where do I get the data to kind of map that ecosystem? Um, and the idea came to me that when you look at a, a LinkedIn profile um, for a company to begin with, you see on the right-hand side, you see the other companies that people who viewed that profile um, have also viewed, uh, so that people also viewed data. Um, and that, of course, is, is network data. So we were able to kind of extract that data from LinkedIn that people also viewed data and kind of map the, originally it was the HR tech ecosystem. And then once we did that, uh, we also realized that we could do the same thing for the profiles of individuals. So just start with, you know, a seed set of nodes or, or people um, in a particular space, and then use the people also view data to kind of map the ecosystem around those kind of seed nodes. Uh, and so uh, what we did then was use, you know, a group of seeds, just a handful of seeds um, in the people analytics space. Uh, so folks like, you know, Richard Rosenhauer, Heather Whiteman, a few other people, just a few seeds. And then we expand from there and iterate on the network um, and create the, you know, the, the network of people analytics practitioners globally, um, find the different clusters, find the people who have kind of outsized influence just kind of based on those LinkedIn connections. So that, that was the genesis of it. How big is Cole's node? <laughs> I think Cole's is Cole's pretty big. It should be. Um, it I'm should pretty be. big. The thing that I'm proud of, and you can see this on the screen if you're looking at it, is I'm like literally smack dab in the center of the network. Um, Very central, man. Very central. And the thing that uh, I found interesting from it, um, and we can go to the HR tech influencers one in a minute, but the people analytics one was if you just chop off the right hand third, that's like... Uh, and again, there are exceptions to this because, you know, some of these com companies have, you know, offices in like Chicago or New York or wherever, but it's almost all made up of the Bay Area. And, and I was like, my goodness, I didn't yeah. realize how central the Bay Area was to uh, the people analytics field because the very center area where I'm a part of it, it's actually not that big of a cluster and it's got people from Europe. It's got people from all over the U S it's got a, you know, some folks from, from different places. And then it's kind of got the David green connection to a bunch of like what I would call like more traditional influencers, like the, you know, Adam grants and that type Josh Burson's and those type of people. But in the very center, it, it's actually a smaller cluster that's kind of globally distributed than the, than just the San Francisco cluster. And that was fascinating to me. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that also illustrates just some basic principles of network analysis. It's just homophily, geographic homophily right there. So these people in the Bay Area connect uh, to one another and, you know, they show up next to each other. Uh, two, two, well, one point is like, that's a beautiful graph. That that looks absolutely beautiful. The the colors on the black background is wonderful. Like, are, are you scraping this LinkedIn data by hand or is it like you have like some sort of well, no, uh, we don't need to process. do it by hand. We have an yeah. automated process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, give us a little bit of the magic sauce. Like, how, how do you kind of scrape this type of data? And, like, um, I'm assuming you're using the Polynode platform to put it together. Like, what, how does that work? Yeah, so, I mean, for this LinkedIn data, I mean, and obviously, LinkedIn, this is just, uh, uh, it's not what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. This is using Polynode for, for an interesting application, yeah. right? But for, for this data, we use... And there's a number of them. There's third-party services that will, um, you know, allow you to. They, they do all the difficult things for you in terms of extracting that data from LinkedIn, and then you basically because LinkedIn doesn't have any APIs, right? Uh, and so you you can't you can't uh, use an API to extract the LinkedIn data. But basically, what they then present is an API for you to query. Um, and so we use effectively a third-party service API to to pull that data in, and we write a script, and then Polynode has. Um, has its own API, so we then write code that um, that pushes that data um, as a network to Polynode, uh, and so yeah, it's all it's all automated, and yeah, you all you have to do on our on our end is provide a, a seed set of nodes, and you get that kind of expanded resulting network. How does this work for like a, a company that's interested in Polynode? Like they they may have a use case, they may have you know a general idea of what they want. And they, they, they come to you and what's the next step in the process? Yeah, I mean, so what we do is, you know, what we are is we're a platform for organizational network analysis, right? Um, and so we typically have a discussion with them about 
but what are their strategic priorities? Because I think as you'll both be aware, one of the challenges of organizational network analysis is that there are so many different things that you can do with it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so what we always try to focus on is understanding, you know, what are the strategic priorities that the organization is looking for? And sometimes they come with, you know, one thing in mind or two things in mind, but there's often a discussion about, uh, you know, is it the identification of emerging talent? Is diversity, equity, and inclusion a priority? Um, you know, is there a specific reason why you want to identify influencers and so on? Uh, and so it's about understanding where, you know, what their priorities are and what would be most valuable for them. And that's often a, a two-way discussion. And then also often because Polynode is a platform for both passive as well as active organizational network analysis, right? And so on the one end, it's, uh, you know, extracting data potentially from, you know, email log files or from, you know, enterprise social networks and so on. And on the other, it's, you know, asking people questions, you know, active O&A, like who do you go to for advice? Who do you work with often? Those types of questions, right? And so it's, there's also often a discussion about whether active O&A is the right approach or passive O&A is the right approach, or sometimes it's a combination of both. Uh, and, um, you know, once, once we understand what the priorities are uh, and once we, you know, have, a, have an approach in mind, uh, it's then about um, executing um, that approach as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I I'm curious, like, how did you get into people analytics originally? And like, why did you create Polynode in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so my, my background's a little bit different to most people in, in people analytics. So um, I actually came to uh, the people analytics world via um, investment banking. So straight out of college or university, as we call it in Australia, uh, I, um, I joined Goldman Sachs. So I spent six years doing M&A advisory. So uh, four years. Could have used Polynode for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's some really interesting use cases um, that relate to m and right? So one that doesn't get talked about that often um, and is actually kind of a lot less popular than I thought it would be when I, when I first started Point Out is M&A integration, right? Like bringing two companies together. Yeah, it makes so perfect not, sense, right? Yeah, it's not as, it's not as far-fetched as one might think, but, um, but yeah, so uh, four years in, uh, in Sydney and then... Um, Two years in New York, so I worked at Goldman for, for two years in New York. Uh, and whilst I was in New York, I got appointed to an internal committee uh, that was looking at things like you know attrition and overload and those types of you know call them um, HR issues, maybe even people analytics issues as well, right? But not really um, in the people analytics space, still in the uh, M and A space. Um, and I started to think about Goldman and organizations generally as networks um, at that time. Uh, and I pretty soon realized that I wasn't the first person to think about organizations as networks. There's obviously, you know, organizational network analysis has been around for a while, right? And uh, even this was 10 years ago um, when, uh, when I first started to look at the space. Um, but I also realized that there wasn't really a tool to make you know, powerful organizational network analysis accessible for people. Uh, and so I decided that uh, what I wanted to do was was basically to build that tool. So I resigned from my job uh, in New York at Goldman and moved back to Sydney um, and started building Polynode. And this is probably really before the people analytics field itself really kind of exploded and grew that strongly as well. And definitely before ONA um, kind of uh, had the significant kind of spike in popularity that it's had over the last few years. Um, and uh, yeah, that's basically why I built Polynode you know, to to help people understand and, and improve the way that organizations function by looking at them and understanding them, you know, through the lens of networks. It's an orthogonal data point, right? We have we have surveys and we have you know demographic information, but the way people communicate is just totally different from anything else. And I, I get annoyed when people say like, "Well, you can't really do anything with network data." It's like, well, you, you can't do anything with engagement data either, really, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you, you got to be a little creative. You got to think about the problem. You got to do this sort of thing. Um, what, 
what, what, what are some like easy entrances into network analysis or, or like what are the most common issues that companies are facing that they can get dip their toe in network analysis and, you know, start exploring the possibilities? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's really kind of three bread and butter, I like to call them kind of applications of m and right? Um, historically, there's been two, but kind of a third one has emerged, I'd say, in the last couple of years. Um, the first is really, you know, understanding and improving collaboration. Right. So wherever there are kind of silos, wherever there are teams that are, you know, not working together where one would expect them to be working together, kind of mapping that and understanding that and using the network data to kind of help break through those barriers and mm -hmm. improve that collaboration. Also where there are potentially uh, groups that might be collaborating more than you might want as well. Right. So it's not always oh, less, it's more too. Uh, so, yeah, I would say the collaboration one is definitely you know, the bread and butter of ONA. The other one, uh, which, and this one has a bunch of different sub-applications or sub-uses of it, but it's very much at the core of ONA, is the identification of influencers, right? So finding people who have outsized influence in an organization. Um, and often those are people that are kind of at the mid or more junior levels. You're often really interested in finding um, the people who have outsized influence um, you know, we often call them shop floor influencers, right? And then the question becomes, what do you do with those identified influencers? And that's why I say they're kind of different sub areas, right? But you might, for example, uh, you know, put them in a room with um, the executive leadership team and just kind of use that to break through all the layers in terms of communication and improve the bi-directional communication from those kind of mid-level or more junior people with, uh, you know, the more senior people in the room. But there are a whole range of different applications for those kind of identified influences, you know, change agent identification, which is historically done, you know, I think quite badly in an organization. And um, that's another kind of classic example for those kind of mm -hmm. uh, identified influences. And then the third one that I would say is kind of like an emerging bread and butter um, use case or application of ONA is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really the inclusion side of DEI. So understanding yeah. like, you know, where in your organization, you know, to give you a classic example, looking at gender, uh, where is there less connection, particularly from a mentorship standpoint between, you know, previously identified, you know, high potential, high performance um, females and more senior um, managers in the organization, those types of questions. Yeah, you know, there's there's no real need to have diversity if people are not actually talking to each other, right? I mean, this is the, this is the core of inclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can be you can be diverse without being inclusive. Absolutely. When I wanted to come back to the the second use case about key influencers for a second, because and we referenced this earlier about the work you guys did using LinkedIn data uh, to identify HR tech influencers. And uh, this one was personal for me because uh, the, the HR tech conference last year, I guess I can say this now because it's a little dated. Um, they put out this list of the top 100 HR tech influencers. And I, I just, me and I, I, many other people took issue with quite a few of the influencers. And so what it, it didn't seem very meritocratic. And uh, notice that you guys put this together and you created a kind of an alternative list of, of who should have been in there had they wow. done it more meritocratically. <laughs> I love and, this. I love and this. number two on the list was Cole Napper. <laughs> you know, it's just like, all right, because Dave Ulrich, I mean, he's a legend. And so being number two behind Dave Ulrich, and then you have people, I mean, these are really well-known commodities like Ben Eubanks and Michael Moon and William Tincup and Ben Teich. And you go down the list and there's so many people that are just fantastic that were left off. And so I was like, thank you, Polynode. And I, I kept, I kept <laughs> spamming the HR tech <laughs> conference, like saying like, look, being really passive aggressive, like, look, look at this list. Yeah. Look, look at this list. And so, uh, thank you for doing this, Andrew. <laughs> no, no worries. But interesting story behind that one. You know, when we originally decided to do that work, um, the working title for it was Hidden Influences. We wanted to find the hidden influences. So using the 100 that the HR tech conferences had identified, we thought, well, you know, who are the people that are probably less well-known? Just using those 100 as like the seed nodes for this expansive network. Mm -hmm. And then we came up with that kind of list of 30 and we thought, well, 
actually, I know a bunch of these people personally, and these are really, you know, well-known names. So, uh, so we can't call it hidden influences anymore because they're not really hidden at all. <laughs> yeah. Fan- fantastic. Well, <laughs> when you g- go back to the, um, something you brought up earlier, um, uh, you had mentioned active versus passive ONA and what is the relationship between either active or passive in engagement surveys? Cause I know it seems like some companies have kind of, have dipped their toes in the water. And do you have kind of a point of view or a perspective on mm. using, you know, Polynode or ONA with engagement surveys? Yeah. So I think this is a, is a really interesting question. Uh, so the thing that people have actually been doing with Polynode um, is actually collecting engagement data alongside network data because you know our relationship-based survey tool, so we have a built-in relationship-based survey tool, uh, it's very flexible. So you can ask literally any question that you like. So of course it's designed to ask those types of relationship questions that I mentioned previously. You know, so who do you go to for advice? Who do you want more access to? who do you view as a source of knowledge and so on, but you can actually use it to ask open text questions, right? And of course, open text questions can be used as really powerful engagement um, questions as well, as well as, you know, your standard matrix questions where you have an agree, disagree, like a like a type for different engagement questions. So one of the really interesting things that you can do around engagement data and network data is actually to collect the two together. So to ask, you know, your, standard or non-standard kind of battery of engagement questions alongside network questions. And then that leads to some really powerful uh, questions that you can ask of the combined data. For example, you know, are the people that are more engaged, are they more central in the network? Are they more peripheral in the network? Because when you actually kind of analyze the engagement data together with the network data, the relationship is not always what you would expect. And it's not always consistent across the organization as well because somebody can be really central in the network and partially perhaps as a result of that centrality, they can be overloaded, right? And that Mm -hmm. because they're overloaded on some of the different dimensions of engagement that can be reflected, right? And so you can understand whether there is a positive or negative relationship between, for example, centrality in the network and, and different measures of engagement. I, I think you hit on like an important point there around the clustering of engagement. So uh, it's one of the beauties of network analysis that you can identify these pockets of, say, disengagement when you added a, uh, these other data points to it. They do not necessarily align to the organizational structure, right? It has to deal with how people actually interact. And like when you combine that with, say, like key players, if you have a disengaged key player, some with a massive network can spread their bad attitude across a bunch of people now <laughs> now you got a real freaking problem right mm-hmm. it's great and you, you got to go talk to them or get them out or do something with them because mm-hmm. they're gonna it's you know rotten apples yeah yeah and 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 that that kind of relates as well to the the cultural influencer point that we we're talking about earlier too, yeah right? absolutely because, in the other direction yeah well but cultural influencers don't always have to be positive cultural influencers so depending Ooh, on the way yeah. that you design the question you know, sometimes we want to specifically target the identification of positive cultural influences, but sometimes the most powerful cultural influences to identify are actually those people who might n- not necessarily be, be having a, you know, a positive influence on culture as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cole's number two on this uh, tech list. I mean, we need to probably talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, they're not positive influencers. <laughs> they just said influencer, right? Yeah. Not necessarily, yeah. Cole, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, we, we had Hemerson on a few weeks ago uh, from Roche. Uh, it seems like you you all have been doing some really cool work with them and even like some of the other providers and partners that you have. You want to talk at all about some of the cool work that you've got going on? And like uh, I, I hear, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a big release coming out soon in Polynode as well. Yeah. You want to pimp that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think... Firstly, obviously, um, Hemerson is a terrific guy. I think you guys all enjoyed chatting to him. And he's been doing some really amazing work with, with Roche, some really interesting, I think, you know, cutting-edge stuff. Um, so, you know, we were speaking about passive organizational network analysis before. Uh, and 
you know, one of the things with passive OA is people often think about uh, email data. They often think about enterprise social network data, you know, like Slack data or Microsoft Teams data and so on. But what people often don't think about is all the other data that naturally exists in an organization as well. Uh, like so, what? So, well, what um, Hemerson has been doing at Roche with the, the team at Roche is tapping into opportunity marketplace data. So at Roche, they've got this, you know, really active opportunity marketplace where people can post these kind of gigs or projects. And then anybody globally can put their hand up and say, I have these skills and I'm interested in working on this project. And then the host can, um, you know, select a group of people and they will work on this particular project. And we're talking about, um, I think it's you know, thousands of people and probably about a thousand of these projects um, kind of globally over you know, quite a large workforce. Uh, and you know, that is you know, a classic network, right? You have people who are globally connected through these different projects. And so what we've worked together with Hemerson on is extracting this data from this opportunity marketplace and then analyzing it in the network, the connections that are created between people through the participation in this kind of large scale opportunity marketplace. And then the really interesting, and I think quite innovative thing um, that, uh, that the team at Roche has done is actually democratize that data. So they're giving access to people. And this is people outside of people analytics. These are people kind of at the, um, you know, the, the coalface of, um, of the, the organization working on these different projects. So those people who want access to these interactive networks in Polynode that describe these kind of global collaboration networks, as they call it, um, have received access to kind of navigate and understand the connections that are created as this project and kind of um, give them insight into this you know, massive global collaboration network. So yeah, really interesting work that, um, that, that Roche has been doing on that. Uh, so, um, and then, you know, Polino 2.0 was your, your other question, which I'm, you know, super excited about. Uh, well, so. What is Polino 2.0? <laughs> Come on, you're burying well, the lead, man. It's, it's, well, we've been working on it for about two years now. So, you know, I've been, I started Polino 10 years ago now. Uh, and you know, we've been getting a lot of feedback and ideas and suggestions from people, you know, over that time. And Polino 2.0 is a full rebuild of, essentially the entire front end of Polynode that incorporates a whole bunch of that feedback. And so there's literally a, you know, a whole bunch of new features, a new design, new look, everything is now a module. So everything could be turned on and off. We've got a networks module, a surveys module. Uh, we've got some other modules as well, passive data module and so on. Uh, we now, the networks use WebGL. So, you know, tap into the GPU on your computer. But one of the most exciting things as well is um, we will shortly be um, enabling secure embedding so that um, other people can use you know, the Polynode um, interactive networks functionality, for example, in other web applications and so on. Oh, fascinating. This 2.0 I thought you just... said secure. I thought you said secure betting, like betting <laughs> online for football games, but I interrupted <laughs> you, Scott. Sorry. No. <laughs> I was going to ask if 2.0 just makes call the most central node in every network. <laughs> That's right. It's it's completely designed to to, yeah, yeah. to bump him up the list to number one. <laughs> Broke his ego at every turn. <laughs> Y'all want to do some uh, confusion matrix? Yeah. Yeah, man. Let's check it out. The confusion matrix. All right. Uh, we have a. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it a quiz. We'll call it a quiz. This isn't really extravagant. Uh, as always, uh, Cole will be the arbiter of truth. If, if your answer is Andrew, satisfy him. He will provide you with a social media tile that you can share online. Perfect. And everyone, feel free to participate here. <clears throat> okay. These are odd facts about Australia, and I'll ask you about them. Oh, no. <laughs> just yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Andrew, I was so fascinated, not just about Polyno, but about <laughs> the fact that you live in Australia, having you on the podcast. So I've been wanting to talk about this stuff if it wasn't clear with the crocodiles comment earlier. <laughs> I, wonder, I, I wonder if my Australian citizen, citizenship might be revoked if I don't get high enough. Cool. Cole, Cole specifically asked me to create this uh, little <laughs> game show, if you will. But okay, are we ready? Yeah. Uh, Australia has the world's longest golf course. How long is it? Golf course? Golf course. Oh, my. 
I don't have any supporting <laughs> evidence of this, by the way. <laughs> this is just what a website told me. Uh, okay. Um, so, I'll, can I give you a hint as yeah. to, not how long it is? I don't know the answer, but the average, like an average golf course, is probably <laughs> sixty five hundred yards. I don't know what that is in meters. <laughs> you're, not, you're making it more hard, right? <laughs> yeah, you're going imperial to metric. This is hard. Yeah. Oh, okay. So this is this is when you add up the length of all of the holes, right? I, I will tell you it's measured in miles. We'll put it that way. It's big. Oh, now I don't even know the answer. If it's measured in miles, it can't possibly be in Australia. Well, I think I think an average golf course is like five miles if you're walking. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that something about right. Like yeah. All right. So I'll go for uh I'll go for eight miles. Cole, you got a guess? I'm gonna say six point seven five. Well, let's try 850 miles. No. <laughs> 850 miles. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll go largest again. The largest cattle station, I guess that's a ranch, in the world is located in Australia. How big is it? Uh, I think Actually, it's, it's bigger It's bigger than, we'll call it a country. What yeah, country is it bigger than? Territory. I have no idea how big it is, but I believe it's sold in the last few years. Um, oh, geez. Who's got that kind of money? Is Goldman Sachs? They coming through? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's probably, yeah, definitely international. Um, so is this measured in hectares or square kilometers? Or it's, square it's, miles? it's just bigger than a country. There's a country. Oh, I better guess the country. <laughs> <laughs> or an approximately sized country, I suppose. All right. Um, France. France, that, that's, that's, that's bigger than the Northern Territory. That's bigger uh, than S S Snoop Dogg thinks you're high. <laughs> I guess uh, I is, it's Israel. Israel, it's bigger Israel. than Israel. Which uh, is, I was gonna yeah. say Luxembourg or something like that. Yeah. How long would it take you to visit every beach in Australia if you visited one per day? Ooh. Oh, wow. okay. We got a lot of beaches. We have a lot of beaches. So. One per day. Twenty I'm years. Say three years. Yeah. Twenty years. Uh, there are ten thousand six hundred and change. This twenty nine years. Wow. Twenty nine years. That's I'm sure. Insane. I'm sure they're all not top notch, but I mean, come on. Yeah. That, that's a lot. Uh, okay. Aussies drink a lot. Approximately how many bottles of beer per each adult a year? A year. Okay. I don't think we're the biggest drinkers in the world. I think we're the biggest gamblers in the world, but I don't think we're the biggest drinkers in the world. That, that is on the list. The gambling thing is on the list. <laughs> wow. Do I get uh, extra marks for, uh, for preemptive I think questions? you do. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a fun fact just associated with that real quick. 20% of all of the uh, slot machines are in Australia. Mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah. Anyway, uh, back to the beer. Uh, okay, I'm going to guess an average of two per day. So let's say 800 a year. I'm going to say, I'm going to uh, use price is right rules and just say one beneath what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how you lose. Actually. Or, or whatever. But I mean, that, that's a good guess. Two per day. It's 680 bottles per beer per adult. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's see. What else we got here? I'll try to pick something. Okay. Here, a gay bar in Melbourne uh, won the legal right to ban women from the bar. Why? <laughs> This, this sounds like a, an answer that gets you fired. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you to you? because perhaps it was so popular, um, women were going there, and so they were displacing um, the intended patrons. <laughs> Goal, anything? I, I got nothing, man. It's pretty simple. They made the men uncomfortable. Oh, oh. Well, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, let's see. Uh, we'll, we'll do one more. Let me find something good. I got a question while you're looking it up. Yeah, please do. Um, I do. You, do you know what Pine Valley is, Andrew? Pine Valley. Mm, yeah. No, no. I watched a show on Netflix about it. It's a. It's a fictional. It's a real place, but it's a fictional show about a base in the middle of Australia that's like a joint venture between oh, yes. Australia and the United States yeah. that does like all the spying Listening. satellites yeah. around the world. It was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Five eyes, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Last one. Uh, former prime minister, Bob Hawk mm. set a world record for doing what? Sculling a beer. 
Ding, ding, ding. This, oh, I definitely would have had my Australian citizenship revoked if I got that wrong. 2.5 well, right. pints in 11 seconds. Yeah. Sculling? What is sculling? Yeah. Drinking it as fast as you can. Oh, so it's like uh, chugging or like funneling a beer or something like <laughs> exactly, that. Kinda? Exactly. Okay. Say, he was he was very, very good at that. And then also when he would go to the cricket, um, everybody would encourage him to drink a beer as quickly as he can. <laughs> we need that's, more of this. That's a fascinating thing to be known for. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did how did Andrew do, Cole? I think he won. Uh, I don't know <laughs> what he won. I think we I all think won. won. I think we all won. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, well, Andrew, you, I, I'm sure you've been waiting with bated breath, but you ready to do some nerdery? Yeah, bring on the nerdery. The nerdery. I'm going to read something for, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I found this post uh, from a girl named Casey Mockel, I think is how you pronounce it. And it was, a, it, it's titled, it is literally impossible to be a job seeker. And I just thought there was so much wisdom in this, but it says you have to be open to work, but not obvious with a green banner that you are open to work. You can't say outright to say that you're looking for a job. You have to say you're ready to move on to your next adventure or challenge. And, but you also have to be open to work. You have to be authentic, but also don't express any real struggles or say anything that may be construed as negative. You have to have a salary range that fits your skills and the value you bring, but you shouldn't ask about the salary if it's not posted or negotiate for more if it's too low because that's crass. You have to show that you're passionate about the role, but not too passionate because then you are desperate. You have to be 100% qualified, but you can't be overqualified, then you will get bored and leave. You have to have room for growth, but also meet all the desired, preferred, and wish list qualifications. Show how your unique background benefits the role, but also come from the exact school, company, and zip code they prefer. And this goes on and on and on. And I was like, wow. That, like, in a nutshell, it was like, yeah, it literally is impossible to be a job seeker. And just over the last, I don't know, year and a half, uh, basically ever since, like, they started doing kind of some of the mass tech layoffs, I've spoken with so many people that have been going through this and experienced this exact same thing. And this girl, Casey, just distilled it better than anyone I have ever heard. I don't know. How did you guys react when you read this? Mm, it's it's enough to make you want to start a company, right? <laughs> <laughs> just get out of it altogether. Just be put it on your own hands. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely... Um, empathize with it because you know i've had friends who have been you know searching for jobs and i think you know what she describes there is you know, consistent but um you know, from from my own perspective i've i haven't had to look for a job you know for 15 years so the, you know the only time i ever went through kind of a formal interview process was um uh, when i when i interviewed for, for goldman sachs uh, um you know many years ago um but that said i think what she says kind of for me highlights the importance of the interview process right when you're actually looking for people and, and how important it is to have a you know an empathetic interview process and to try to um to try to find people's strengths rather than you know when you're interviewing people look for the weaknesses and the flaws so you know when i was reading that that was one of the reflections that came out for me it's tough out there for a player, right? I mean, like you're you're trying your best. Well, I mean, like this is classic signaling theory. Like you see it in dating. Like you, you want to be into them, but not too into them, right? And like you see it in college coaching searches. Like I I, I will go to your university, but only if you ask me to. You know all this sort of stuff, and uh, it it makes perfect sense that you would see this here. Uh, I, I think the organizations are essentially looking for well-rounded people i guess like you you can't be like too enthusiastic which actually the antithesis we talked about engagement earlier you, you you're looking for the highest engagement possible in your organization but maybe maybe that's not ideal actually yeah mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. wants to eat at a five-star restaurant for fast food prices that's that's what i see it kind of distilling down to is like you just make it to where you know if you can again get somebody to, the, the impossible or what what recruiters sometimes call the purple unicorns 
out there. And the reason why you have to look for purple unicorns is because of everything that was said in this, this little diatribe by Casey is like, it's just impossible to be a job seeker. During the uh, interview process, they put a cognitive load on you. Like, A, you probably need a paycheck, right? Or yep. it's something that you want. So, like, you're extra eager. But <laughs> obviously, if you, you're too eager, then, like, you're going to you know, fumble your words or yeah. you know, be, be too much. Yeah. You can't be nervous, right? Because you, yeah. know, you can't want it too much because then you'll come across nervous and over-eager. Yep, exactly. Well, Scott, do you want to tee up uh, the next one? Where where are we going now? I, I don't even know what this is, to be honest with you, but Vanderpump rules? Yes, what is yes. So I wouldn't go as far as to call this a, a prized possession, but I, I've been studying networks for several years now, and I found this just on Instagram, probably like 2019, and a uh, whoever this is, whoever this user is, essentially mapped out the Vanderpump network on a napkin and took a photo of it and like posted it online. And I, I think it's so great. I, I are, are either you either you fans of Vanderpump? I've uh, never even heard the words until you shared this with me. I have not heard of it previously. But it, thank you so much for introducing it. Oh my! I it is absolutely insane. Uh, I get dragged to Vanderpump things every so often. I have been to the Vanderpump restaurant in uh, Caesar's Palace in Vegas. It is very girly and very expensive and very good. I will put it that way. But what is it? Like it's it's a TV show about a essentially a restaurant. So like it's, there's fans out there they're going to get on my butt here because I don't really fully understand it. And it's 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 pure insanity. Everyone is like fighting constantly or sleeping with each other, which is the point of this network. This is a very simple network, but I think it's great because it offers a couple different principles around network analysis. One, we have two different node ties or type of edges here. Like one is sex. And that's all the interconnections here. So all these people are sleeping with each other. Oh and my the, God. the green lines are violence. <laughs> so these are people that hit each other, or, you know, whatever they did with each other. But with just a simple network, I don't know, there's maybe 20 people here. You could already start picking out central players and like how their interrelations work or like this Tom Sandoval. He's, he's an insane looking alien guy. But and he's he's always in trouble. But he's he has high betweenness here between Kristen and uh, I say Adriana Ariana. You you can already understand how this like sexual relationship would work in his distant favor. You know all these sort of things. But you can see like principles such as density of ties. So obviously sex has had higher density. You can start seeing um, once again the the key players in the network. Well, and also, you know what I find quite interesting is that the sex network is, of course, undirected, and the physical violence is a direct. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes. Yeah. I mean, that's another that's another principle right there. Direction well, it, of network. I mean, I I find like just from looking at it, I didn't actually look at what the colors of the lines meant until you said this, but it looks like there's a strong correlation between sex and physical violence in here yes. too. Yeah. So, so there's definitely um, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the violence. I'll just say this for sex. listeners: this episode versus pretty much any episode we've ever had is probably a good one to watch on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of this is not going to make any sense unless you you've seen the, what we're showing on the screen. <laughs> I, I'll say two more things: like one, you don't need a whole lot of data to start understanding your network, right? You you don't need to scrape everything of course polynode can offer those sort of services and you know get you hooked up there but just a simple back the napkin you already starting to understand the network etc but you you brought up this uh as well earlier you don't necessarily need to have communication ties you can also have you know different sort of relationships between people that will have meaningful connections in the network it doesn't have to be say emailing one another to be uh totally robust well, what's fascinating is Andrew, you actually sent over, I guess, the same thing. Yeah, done in Polynode. I love it. Exactly. So, Explain so when you sent me uh, a copy of that that image, I was like, "Well, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if we can just create it in Polynode." Uh, and that's exactly what we did. We just, you know, took the uh, took the the raw data from that image, um, and because Polynode can, you can upload literally any network or connected data to analyze in Polynode. Uh, we uploaded that data, the Vanderpump's rules data into Polynode. 
uh, and you know it automatically runs a layout algorithm. So it looks a little bit different because, of course, when you're hand drawing the network, you know, you're not able to just run a layout algorithm in your head. And so we've got the nodes kind of positioned according to a force directed layout algorithm, and we've you know colored the edges by physical violence or or a sexual relationship. Oh, and then the other thing that we've done here, in addition to um, you know what you saw in that um, that you know hand drawn diagram, is we've actually applied a community detection algorithm. So basically, an algorithm that partitions the the nodes in the network into groups that are kind of more connected with each other than they are to the rest of the network. So basically, higher you know um, density of connections within the group. And so you can see that you know, based on these connections, there's a total of five different informal communities and you know what those communities represent. So for example, you've got you know, Kristen in the center of one community, Stasi in another community and so on. Well, like I I've never seen this show, but I'm just going to make a hypothesis based on this ONA that Kristen is just a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> or Kristen definitely knows stuff about everybody if you want to know yeah. about the network you go to kristen mm -hmm. right she can tell mm -hmm. you a little bit about everybody mm -hmm. okay she's got a bunch of stuff going on here i, I <laughs> wish i knew more about the show to like offer some like uh, sme advice or you know some more colorful analysis i i do know that sandoval is <laughs> a highly controversial figure because of his betweenness okay <laughs> I'll, I guess we'll leave it at that. Yes. I will say, if you are curious about any of these uh, polynode graphs that we've showed, we will link all of them in the show notes. So you can go find out for yourself if you're a Vanderpump Rules uh, fan, like what's going on here. You want to do the last one? Yeah, let's do the last one. Uh, okay, this is a HBR. It's a how to lead across siloed organizations. So a key challenge of CEOs is to get their executives to work together in cross-functional capacity because it's actually essential for an organization's success. So the pandemic, of course, accelerated a lot of this siloing behavior. So we became geographically distributed. We have less frequent face-to-face -face interactions. And overall, there's just like a lack of enterprise-wide incentives to work in that sort of way. Uh, but some people can't do it. They have this sort of lateral agility so they can uh, have an expanded mindset so they can see big picture. They have cognitive skills such as curiosity and uh, engage in innovative practices such as like we each bring different sort of things to the table and we can make something better. So how do you actually get better? Well, uh, you can take a uh, snapshot, a mental snapshot of your own network and uh, also assess how much time you spend with different sort of people and uh, overall, just over understand the goals of your peers and how you can help contribute for the overall organizational good. Yeah. When I, when I looked through this one, the thing that I found that was interesting that, because um, I had done some of this work in the past, and they said that the CEOs, and this is a common CEO problem, but I don't think many people that work in businesses understand this, is they really have a tough time getting their executive teams to work together because of the siloed nature of how each executive treats their business unit as kind of, of independent. And it creates this, this kind of gridlock and chaos. And, and the CEO's common complaint is I'm the only one in the company that sees the whole entire picture. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've said before about people analytics is it's one of the very few resources in the entire company that sees things through the lens of the CEO. And so it's one of the few functions that actually mm, does look mm. at the entire company and wants to break down barriers. Like if we, we've talked a lot on the podcast before about how incentives lead good people to do bad things. And one of the things is most people's incentives are to be siloed, right? And so there's very few kind of counterweights to that. I would say a chief people officer is actually one of them because they need to look at the entire company and people analytics within the HR functions happens to be another. And so, but it, it's a challenge to break down these silos. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, Andrew, like tips and tricks around like you, how you could use ONA for like M&A or for change management. One of the key use cases of change management is usually breaking down silos. So I don't know, do you have kind of a 
polynode yeah. spin on this? Well, well, absolutely. So I think people, when they think about ONA, they often think about whole of company organizational network analysis, like kind of tapping into all the passive data or running a whole of company active ONA. Some really interesting and powerful and successful ONAs that I've seen are actually with much smaller groups, yeah. including executive leadership team plus one or executive leadership team plus two. So you can run an ONA with 20 people, with 30 people, with 40 people, right? Just the most senior folks and actually- Or just Vanderpump rules. <laughs> just Vanderpump rules. <laughs> but- Who's sleeping with who? <laughs> maybe we don't ask that question. <laughs> But just in that kind of executive leadership team, and then show it, show it to that team, right? Um, and show show people what does the network look like in order for them to understand where there is an absence of collaboration. You know, which people should be talking more to other people, but aren't. Show them those barriers, and that can be just a really effective way. You know, as this article describes, for encouraging that kind of cross-functional connection and relationship um, at that level. As you, that, that's the beauty too, because like, I understand like who I talk to, I have a somewhat of an understanding of who Cole talks to, but not really. So mm -hmm. it, it, you can't really see more than two people away, not with any sort of accuracy, but if you like put like this, like helicopter view in front of them of like, here's how the network's functioning, who's actually talking to each other, it becomes cr crystal clear at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, small ONAs can be incredibly powerful. Right. I think that that incentive structure that you mentioned too, Cole, is like really powerful. Like when you, when your performance is based on how you run your organization, which, you know, I'm going to run like a company. It's like, well, if you're running a company, like you don't want any dependencies. You don't want any dependencies. You're not going to collaborate. Yep. Why would you collaborate? <laughs> you know, the incentive structure in there. But the, the other thing that occurred to me when I read this article as well is um, how much it emphasizes the role of the leader. Um, the, the leader reaching out cross-functionally and collaborating with other leaders. But yeah. I think it's also really important for the leader of a team or a group to encourage cross-collaboration um, within his or her own group as well. So not necessarily always directly him or herself, but to encourage and promote and reward um, people within their team working across teams as well. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you, you do a lot of like, maybe not cross, um, company collaboration, but cross world collaboration. I mean, you're, you're working American hours and Australian hours. How do you do that effectively? <laughs> Wake up early in the morning. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, the truth is my days are, are, are relatively long. Um, because, you know, you have um, working with the U.S. in particular in the morning in Australian time. And then I also do a lot of work with, with Europe um, in the evenings. Uh, but the, um, you know, the, I think the, the, way that I, the way that I do that is I take breaks at lunchtime. So um, my, you know, the, the least intense part of my day is often in the middle of the day. Um, and so I think is that, that, sw that swim time, swim time, go in the ocean. Uh, swim time is generally the weekends. Uh, I do try to go to the gym during lunchtime, but there's often yeah not enough time to to go yeah to the ocean during during lunchtime. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's amazing what you can do as well just with um, uh, with Zoom. So you know, I think it's 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 really possible to to build very real relationships with people all around the world um over zoom of course it's much better to see people in person which is why i do try to make trips um to the us and to europe um you know at least a few times a year um but you know it's um the combination of the occasional in person um but then also you know video calls and um you know talking to people online uh, you know these days it makes it very possible to to you know span the world and you know not be tied down to australia at all absolutely well speaking of not being tied down to australia congratulations are in order um, <laughs> i know that you just got married and we're out of the country on your honeymoon so i appreciate oh, you coming back to join us you want to talk no, at all about your honeymoon the honeymoon was great I thoroughly recommend vietnam um we had a yeah a lovely honeymoon in vietnam and got back three days ago, feeling refreshed, 
<laughs> do you do any ho- ocean swimming in Vietnam? Um, a little bit. Of, we, we spent, so I'm generally not a resort guy. I, I generally oh, okay. prefer um, not resorts, but at the end of, at the end of the honeymoon, we decided to spend three days um, in a resort uh, just to have a bit of relaxation because, you know, the lead up to a wedding and everything that goes along with that is, can be quite intense. Um, and Hanoi itself, which is where we were before, can also be quite intense. Um, so, yeah, we, we spent a few days in a resort and then had a lovely long pool and I was able to get some swims in there. It's, it's a tough life you live. It's a tough life. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Thanks so much for being on the pod, Andrew. How can, how can folks get in touch with uh, you and Polly Notes? They want to reach out. Yeah, um, I think... Twitter, you'll find me on Twitter, um, and Pitts on on Twitter. You'll also find Polynote there. Uh, LinkedIn is always really good. Um, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on, not hard to find on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, otherwise, yeah, send us a message um, via the website if you want to. Fantastic. Well, you've been you've been fun to have on, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, guys. It's been terrific. Awesome. Well, you've been listening to Direction to Correct, the People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Andrew Pitts. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hey, guys. Direction to Correct is dedicated to you, our listeners, to help educate and entertain you on how to effectively do people analytics. By supporting this podcast, you're helping us continue to provide valuable insights and knowledge to our listeners. Please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes or at patron.podbean.com slash directionally correct. Thanks for your support.